1998, DreamWorks Studio produced a movie called The Prince of Egypt. Anybody ever heard of that movie, Prince of Egypt? Some, many, whoop, I like it. Many of you would have uh, maybe have grown up watching that movie. Some of you remember when your kids watched that movie for the first time. The Prince of Egypt brought a all-star cast. They had the, the voice of Moses was played by Val Kilmer, who is from Top Gun, if you don't recall. Also, there were some other ones there that now I'm blanking off the top of my head. I don't have my, these, uh, this written down in my notes or anything. But earlier this week, Hannah, Samuel, Benjamin, and I sat down as I was preparing to preach out of Exodus chapter 15, we sat down as a family and watched the Prince of Egypt movie. And Samuel was just completely enthralled. If you don't know who Samuel is, he's our two-year-old son. He was completely enthralled from the movie, uh, at the movie from the beginning. And almost halfway through, he was pretty enthralled. He was kind of getting it. But I wanted to tell y'all just two things from that experience, and it was indeed an experience. We noticed at the beginning of the film, uh, Moses' mother is avoiding Egyptian soldiers who are going throughout the land of Egypt, who are traveling throughout the town, picking up newborn babies. Y'all know the story. Y'all know how it goes. Y'all know what happens. And she's avoiding these soldiers. She's trying to get Moses to the river, to the Nile, to put him into a basket, to set him afloat, who, where he'll eventually be picked up by uh, queen, the queen of Pharaoh. And so we get to the river scene. She puts the basket in the water. She puts baby Moses into the basket, sets the basket afloat. And of course, it's a DreamWorks film, the same people who produce Shrek, so you know they're going to be animated about it. And so this little basket is in the river, and it's avoiding crocodiles, and it's almost getting run over by ships, and just all sorts of things. And we, we hear a little whimper from the, the place on the floor where Samuel is sitting, and he looks back at us with the biggest frown on his face. He is worried if this little baby is going to make it or not. In fact, he looks back at Hannah and I, and he goes, <sighs> Our son is very emotionally aware. He, he has all the extremes of emotions, happy to sad and everything in between. And we had to assure him, we said, Samuel, you know, spoiler alert here for you, buddy. He's going to be okay. He's going to make it. And then you get to that iconic scene towards the end of the movie where uh, Pharaoh is pursuing the Israelites. The Israelites, of course, have their back to the Red Sea. And DreamWorks animates it very, uh, very loudly, I guess you could say, with the way the geography is set up. If you haven't seen the movie, go and watch it. I'm not actually endorsing it, but go and watch it. It'll be, it'll be something for you to think about. And uh, we have the picture of the Red Sea with the, the pillar of fire coming and separating the Israelites from the Egyptians. And the, of course, the Red Sea is parted. The movie does this thing where Moses steps into the water and slams the staff into the water and it just bursts forth like some kind of aerodynamic thing. We actually are told in the text that he holds the staff over the water and the wind blows and and it pushes back the water throughout the night, right? But the, the movie animates it very well. Go check it out. But the, the, one, the thing I wanted to draw out for us this morning is actually the 15th chapter we're going to be examining. After the Israelites make it through the Red Sea in the movie, there is a great big old party going on, if I could put it in southern terms. These people are throwing down because they have just been delivered from the hands of their enemy. You can imagine 
the charge of excitement and relief in the air as Israel burst forth from the dry ground of the Red Sea onto the other side, and they look back, and the Egyptian army, the Egyptian host, is cast into the waters. The Israelite host is delivered. The Egyptian army is destroyed. And Exodus chapter 14 actually ends with the verse, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. This is so critical in understanding the next chapter of Exodus. You see, the climax of the, climax of the Exodus has been reached. The Israelites are saved. God has delivered them. This truth of Israel's deliverance has to be on our minds this morning as we read Exodus 15, because what is going to happen next in the life of Israel is that they are going to sing a song of joy and praise to God of the deliverance that He has provided to them. So while we read Exodus 15, the first, I believe, 22 verses, 21 verses, I want you to Really strive this morning to read it with your heart rather than with your head. Let's try to feel what the Israelites were feeling as they sang this song, as the words were penned. Let's read it with the same attitude that they would have sang it with. Exodus chapter 15, uh, actually verses 1 through 18 beginning. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will extol Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army He has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. 
terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Did you sense the worship of Israel as they sang this song unto the Lord? I love that the song tells a story of their deliverance. They rejoice in what the Lord had done on their behalf. They remember what the Lord had done. Egypt's finest came out to destroy Israel. The fourth verse tells us that Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. Israel's enemy was, by an earthly standard, nothing to underestimate. These weren't peasants equipped with loincloths and wooden sticks. These were professional soldiers trained and equipped for battle. And even though the song demonstrates that Egypt brought out a professional fighting force, they truly stood no chance against God. The eighth verse tells us, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. Egypt brought out their finest fighting force, and in order to defeat them, all God had to do was, in the imagery of this text, breathe out of His nose. Y'all, the text, the song portrays to us that, that the Egyptians stood no chance. They could have brought out millions of soldiers and hundreds of thousands of chariots, and their fate still would have been the same. The truth of the matter is, no enemy of God stands a chance against Him. Psalm 2 tells us that the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And a little later on it says, And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The nations rage, kings gather their armies, enemies plot and scheme, and yet the Lord holds power and victory over all of them in the very breath of his lungs. I'd like for us to take note of Israel's joy this morning. See, we can, we can easily infer from the reading of the song that the tone of the song is one of joy. And I believe we see it from the text as well. I'd like to uh, finish reading verses uh, 20 and 21. Let's read that together. It's Miriam the prophetess. That's where it starts. Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out with her, with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. We are told in verse 20 that Miriam, with all the women of Israel, with timbrels in hand, think of a uh, primitive or archaic tambourine, went out with singing and dancing. The attitude of Israel in this moment is important to take note because What's going to happen in about three days is their attitude is going to change. Their note, is, their note of attitude is going to be a bit different than it is now. See, right now in Exodus 15, the tone of the passage is one of joy and celebration. Look, the Lord has delivered us. The Lord is my salvation. 
and they are partying hard due to their deliverance, right? But the tone is going to change. See, the next five verses of Exodus 15 paint a picture of what is going to be a cycle as Moses and the Israelites reside in the wilderness. See, the Israelites are going to get caught in a jam. Sometimes it's water, sometimes it's food, sometimes it's enemy armies. Other times it's just their doggone disobedience, their outright disobedience of the Lord. And time and time and time and time again, the Lord is going to deliver them. If you will, look with me, Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elam, or Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Moses and the Israelites were three days into the wilderness of Shur. Uh, Shur is the piece of land that is directly south of where Israel is located. In modern map terms, if we want to think there, it is where the countries of Saudi Arabia and Yemen are located. Uh, Mount Sinai, a very important place in the Bible, is also located in the wilderness of Shur. It's also the territory of the Ishmaelites and the Amalekites. We love those words, don't we? Uh, in a few chapters, the Israelites are going to have a conflict with them. I'm going to let that preacher handle that, though. Uh, they're going to have a conflict with them near Rephidim, though. Okay. So three days into their wilderness journey, the Israelites aren't going to have access to water. And subsequently, their lives will be in danger. People need water to survive. The timetable that a person can survive without water, and there's a little bit of wiggle room here, but generally speaking, is three days. So as we can see in the text, the Israelites are in danger. The Israelites arrive at a place the text calls Marah, where they find a supply of water, but it's not all it's cracked up to be. The water is bitter. The name of the place actually signifies to us that the water is bitter. Uh, all of your Bibles should have a little footnote there around verse 23 that says something to the effect of marah means bitterness. And when the text says bitter, it isn't merely saying it's unpleasant to drink or it's got a nasty taste to it, like a glass of unsweet tea or maybe sugar-free lemonade, right? It's not as though Israel could somehow stomach it you know, they're just being brats at this point. No, the, a survey of this word throughout the Bible reveals the scope of the word doesn't merely mean distasteful or sour. It actually points to something much more serious. The Israelites, whom haven't had water in three days, have arrived at a water supply that isn't drinkable because it would more than likely cause them to become ill. Y'all, there is no 
hidden mystery as to what will happen to the Israelites if something doesn't change very soon for them. They are going to die. The folks who were rejoicing at the edge of the Red Sea three days prior, according to verse 24, are now grumbling to Moses about the situation. It, it really does remind me of James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, where James speaks regarding the human tongue, and he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. It is so interesting to note how in a matter of three days, the tune of the Israelites shift completely. And, and I'm certainly not trying to pick on them or ridicule them and, 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 and you know, make us think poorly or badly of them, because in their situation, y'all, we would have done the exact same thing. We'd have been just like them. In fact, it doesn't take me three days to go from praising to grumbling. It takes me about an hour. Let's be honest. Israel is in a desperate situation. Their lives are on the line. If something doesn't change, they're going to die. Fortunately, something is going to change for them. We are told, very matter-of-factly, in verse 25, Then he, Moses, cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. We aren't told in the next verse how the Israelite host might have surged forward to drink from the now sweet springs of Marah. In one verse, Moses brings it to the Lord God, and the Lord makes provision for his people. God shows Moses a tree, and the text tells us that somehow Moses knew to take that tree and throw it into the waters of Marah. Let's camp out there for just a moment. We aren't told anything specific about the tree. We aren't told what kind of tree it is. The original word that the author uses here to tell us about the tree is, is the general word for tree. So if I walk outside right now and I point over to the tree line and I say, hey, look, those are trees, I would factually be correct. I don't know what kind of trees those are. Some of you do, I'm sure. There may be oaks, pines, something. I don't know what they are. But the word tree fits. Well, this is the word that the original author uses. He used the word for tree. Some uh, rabbinic literature uh, coming from the rabbi's meaning conjecture that it could have been an olive tree or a pomegranate or even a date tree. Other sources claim that it could have been a sapwood tree or possibly even an ecosia or ecosia tree. In my own personal studies, I found these explanations to be interesting but ultimately irrelevant. If God had used a specific kind of tree because he knew the properties of it would somehow decontaminate the waters, then all praise and glory be unto the Lord. He made that tree, he put it there for that purpose, right? But if God simply used a normal tree that didn't have any special properties about it to decontaminate the water, then praise be unto the glory of the Lord, he has done something miraculous. He's taken an oak tree and made bitter water sweet. In either case, though, God is the one who gets the glory. He is the source of the miracle. He is the source of the healing, and his people praise him for it. I, I do think the narrative of Exodus 15 doesn't tell us what kind of tree it is because the author wants us or wants to point his readers to the working of God on behalf of his people. In other words, God provided the tree 
God delivered His people, God gets the glory. And God sent His beloved Son to die on a tree so that those who would believe would not die, but have eternal life. See, in Exodus 15, there is a picture of the gospel here and the way that the casting of the tree into the waters of Marah makes them sweet to drink. The tree went down into the waters, and by the power of God, it absorbed the bitterness of that water. That which would kill the Israelites would now give them life. Think on that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that He being God made Him being Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The Israelites were bound to die if God had not intervened on their behalf. And the same is absolutely true for those who do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has intervened on your behalf. He has sent Jesus to the cross. He has brought forth a wonderful gift that now must be accepted or rejected. The life of His Son on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus went into sin and death and took on both on behalf of those who would believe. But to those who do not believe, we want it to be clear this morning, they stand condemned because of their sin. John chapter 3, verse 18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. My plea for you this morning is that you would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think every time I preach, I bring up Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, It's absolutely one of my favorite verses in Scripture. And to be be completely fair and honest with you, every time I preach from here on out, I'm probably going to bring it up in some way, shape, or form. Because Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 tell us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness... And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And in doing so, Colossians 1.13 tells us that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For those who believe the gospel, the bitterness of sin that was present in the life of the believer has been turned to a song of joy because of the redemption we have in Christ. Jesus, in His death on the cross, if I may, became the bitterness of sin on our behalf so that we would be able to boldly proclaim, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Y'all, at this point I would love to just have an invitation, right? Right? But let's continue, because there's going to be something else we see in this text that is absolutely beautiful in Exodus 15. In verse 26, the Lord promises that if Israel would walk with Him, that they would never experience the curses that plagued Egypt. God proclaims in that moment that He would be their healer. Ancient uh, Near Eastern covenants, which we need to go back to the context here, often contain statements such as this between nations, often between a king and a vassal state, which would be a servant of that king. Uh, the king would promise to provide protection to their vassal so long as the vassal 
provided their dues, so paid their taxes, uh, generally didn't act in, in, in misbehavior, didn't rebel, so on and so forth. We see a lot of these uh, covenants in the book of Judges, actually, when Israel would come under uh, rule of another king because of their sin, which kids, by the way, the big takeaway of Judges is that we're really sinful, and without the Lord, there ain't no hope for us, okay? All right, there's your, there's your Evan Sheridan version of the day for Judges. But, the, uh, and this, but this, this idea of, if you will be my people, I will be your healer. This is very uh, common, rudimentary form of a covenant in their time period. This is the form of the language in verse 26. God will be their healer so long as Israel continues to walk in obedience to him. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that Israel is not going to keep their end of the covenant up. Right? He, he remains faithful to them despite their unfaithfulness to him. And yes, there are punishments and there are consequences that Israel faces, but those punishments and consequences, I want to remind us, are always for the purpose of redemption. God is always fulfilling His end of the covenant, even when Israel is not. Because He is faithful, even when they're not. And y'all, the truth remains the same today. Even when we are not faithful, He remains faithful. Even when we are not good, He remains good. Even when we would rather sin and hate God and love self, He still loves us. His blood still shed on the cross for us. The 15th chapter, let's... Let's get to the verse 27. Ends on a high note. Verse 27 says, Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. God brings them to a place of plenty and rest. They aren't going to stay there by no means, but the mini narrative, the mini plot of chapter 15 ends on this note. God has delivered them. God has provided for them. If I make one more connection for Christians today as we read Exodus 15, uh, our chapter is also going to end on an extremely high note. God brought them to a place of rest and providence. Y'all, listen. God is bringing you to a place of rest and providence. Your story does not end in a wooden box six feet underground. The next chapter of this life is heaven, baby. If you'll indulge me for a moment. When I was a younger Christian, I, I didn't give a whole lot of thought to the hope of the believer in heaven. I, I knew it was where I was going one day when I drew my last breath. I know it's going to be amazing when I get there, right? But you know what youngin really spends a whole lot of time thinking about heaven. Think about the afterlife. Think about what happens after death. But I'll tell you this, though. The older I get, the more I think about heaven and the more I look forward to the reality that is awaiting me and the reality that is awaiting every believer in Christ across the face of the globe, across history. When life gets particularly hard or difficult, by God's grace, after I've wallowed in my despair, because I'm a wallower, I wallow. He reminds me of the hope that I ultimately have one day being with Him in heaven. Revelation points to a day 
in which she will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I have made one plea this morning. Let me make it again. My plea is that you would believe in Jesus Christ and confess Him as Lord and as Savior. In just a moment, Pastors Kyle and Aaron will be in the back of the room and uh, we will have our response time. If you would like to speak to either either of these gentlemen about what it means to know Jesus and walk with Him and follow Him, please do not hesitate. On the first strum of the guitar chord, stand up and head back. Resolve now to follow through. Resolve now to be obedient to the leadership of the Holy Spirit as He works upon your heart. Will you join me with prayer? Lord, we pause for just a moment to reflect on what You have done. Lord, there is not enough time in the day time in the year even, to properly relate every good and gracious thing you have accomplished, every good and gracious way you have delivered us and brought about life for us. But Lord, even even so, in this moment, Lord, I pray that our hearts and our minds and our eyes would be focused upon you, would remember the things you've done, not only in the life of the Israelites here in Exodus 15, but also in the life of every individual here and sending Your Son to die on a cross so that we would be saved. Lord, You are so worthy of our worship. You are so worthy of our praise. And I pray that the attitudes of our heart as we worship You would not be something that we just experience in this room, but Lord, as we go out, may it be to Your glory and to Your honor the praises of Your people to Proclaim the gospel of your Son to the nations. Lord, in this moment, though, we pray that you would, Lord, that you would draw the sinner to you in repentance. Lord, they would taste the goodness of your gospel. And Lord, that you would just do that work in their hearts now. Lord, each of us are going through stuff. Each of us have gone through things. Lord, I pray that in everything, You would be our healer. You would be our provider. You would be the one whom we keep our eyes focused on no matter what. Help us now to respond as your spirit leads. In the name of Jesus, amen.